Well, welcome back to The Bill Bennett Show. It's the podcast that takes a deeper look at the news of the day and gives you thoughtful perspective, or so we hope, about what's happening in America at home and abroad. Joining me today is Joel Farkas, director of the American Strategy Group. Get his thoughts on something interesting regarding the European Union wanting natural gas from the West, from the United States and North America. We'll also take a look at some interesting things happening in our West, on our West Coast, California. As you know, Joel Farkas is our, our head of our California desk and keeps us posted on what's happening there, since a lot of people think the future of America is the future of California. Also, we will hear from the great Conrad Black, get out your thesaurus and your dictionary. Uh, he is the author and the non-affiliated member of the House of Lords. His latest book is Donald J. Trump, a president like no other. We'll take a look at two of his most recent articles. And we will finish up our two-part interview with Phil Steele of the Phil Steele College Football Preview Magazine. He's an ESPN insider. We'll have some thoughts on uh, Urban Meyer in that regard, by the way. Several matters on my mind today that I'd like to raise with you. First of all, um, I went to a meeting at the White House. I think it's perfectly fine to talk about this. And um, there were several other people there. Robbie George from Princeton University, uh, some other people from Turning Point and uh, other groups, uh, to talk about higher education, free speech, and the open campus. Uh, what to do about it? What to do about the fact that there are uh, campuses where free speech is uh, squashed or quashed, where it's not allowed, uh, where uh, people with uh, conservative opinions uh, are not welcome? What to do about that? A lot of uh, good ideas went around the table. And I have a research assignment for someone, Claude. We have listeners. We have very attentive listeners out there, very thoughtful people. There's been a lot of free speech problems at Yale. People remember they fired a master of one of the houses because he said something that was politically incorrect, something very minor. There was, uh, uh, you know, they had a, a Mexican night and somebody you know, dressed in Mexican garb, and that was regarded as a violation of uh, of uh, pro- propriety. Uh, a number of problems at Yale relating to this. But as Robbie George, professor at Princeton, pointed out, there, there are no such problems at Princeton. Now, it's essentially the same student body. They draw from the same pool, a very talented, very bright, uh, academically gifted and uh, otherwise uh, talented students. Why uh, no problem at Princeton, but problems at Yale? Um, one of the thoughts here is that at Princeton, there is something called the James Madison Center, uh, which Robbie George runs, which uh, brings conservative professors to campus. Point is, they have conservatives in and out all the time uh, at Princeton. It's no big deal to bring in a conservative person. The Witherspoon Institute, former uh, listeners to my or, People who are listening who used to listen to my radio show will remember the guests we used to have on from Princeton and the, and the Witherspoon Institute. So there's the habit of having an open campus, or if you will, at least open to um, conservative viewpoints. But not so much at Yale. Uh, what else might account for the difference? Anybody have any ideas? Send us an email. But I did make a proposal, and I would like to uh, tell you about my proposal. Uh, thanks to our friend Seth Leaps, and I'll give him a tip of the hat here. Uh, you remember Seth Leaps and Claude? Yes, we love that. Sure. <laughs> okay. He reminded us of the Solomon Amendment. Jerry Solomon, congressman from New York, in the early 2000s introduced an amendment that said any college or university receiving federal aid 
uh, money from the government uh, had to have its campus open to uh, military recruitment, to ROTC. And uh, that was passed into law. You know, you don't have to take the money, but if you take the money, uh, you got to abide by that amendment. Uh, so ROTC present on campuses can't be excluded. Uh, I suggested a, uh, a copy, if you will, of the Solomon Amendment, in which you say any institution of higher education uh, receiving financial aid money from the federal government has to embody and incorporate the values of the First Amendment of the Constitution uh, in, uh, in its practices. That well, is, must maintain an open campus. The spirit, if you will, of the First Amendment. Um, the notion that uh, it's a free place, it's a free, it's a place where free speech should reign. Uh, I remember a line from a book, I think, I can't remember exactly who it was, but it, it, a person wrote and said, these little republics, these colleges and universities, need to remember the larger republic, uh, which stands there to protect it. We wouldn't have these campuses were it not for the larger republic. So let's incorporate the values of that larger republic, starting with the First Amendment to the Constitution. Okay, another couple of thoughts while we're talking about uh, universities and thinking of young people. Uh, I'm sorry to report that um, maybe the people in Colorado will take this as good news. The pot capital of America is not Colorado, apparently. It really? Is Massachusetts. Okay. Did you know that? No, I did not. Um, 21% of all Massachusetts residents admitted to smoking pot in June 2018. Twenty-one percent. How about this, though? Young adult marijuana use in Massachusetts appears to be exploding. Half of residents 18 to 25 years old reporting using marijuana in the last 30 days. Wow. Half. Half. Half the 18 to 25-year-olds are buzzed. I mean, this is crazy. This is not the marijuana of the 60s. It's much more potent. This marijuana... That's three, four times the effect of the marijuana in the 60s. But even the marijuana in the 60s wasn't good for you. You know, you lose attention, you lose focus, you lose memory, uh, and you can lower your IQ, particularly if you start when you're young like these people are. Mm -hmm. So I I just, this is insane. And we're we're on this legalization bender around the country. It's just terrible. If people have anecdotes or stories about this in Massachusetts or Colorado, let us know. Uh, 34% of the state's pot smokers admitted to driving a motor vehicle while high. Now, you know, you drive your kid around, Claude, you know? Right, I mean, How yeah. many motorists out there are high these days? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. It's just unbelievable to me. So that's another sort of an update on something I'm working on. Um, just uh, want to mention two other things. Um, the... Um, Supreme Court, speaking of the Supreme Court, uh, ruled in the Janus case that uh, public sector unions, uh, the membership, people have to opt in. They have to affirmatively say, I want to be part of the union and pay the dues. And if they don't, then they cannot automatically be presumed or in any way be presumed to be members. That was a big and important decision. This will shake up the unions. Hopefully, it'll shake up the profession. Hopefully, it'll bring about more professionalism in the education profession, I certainly hope so. But what's interesting, we got an op-ed out on this. Um, Karen Nussel and I, she and I work together at a group called Conservative Leaders for Education, uh, is that um, states are resisting it. States are saying, 
you know, okay, you only have two days to opt in. Okay, uh, you know, they're adopting all these rules to kind of frustrate what the Supreme Court said, which is you cannot assume people are in. They have to opt in to union membership. No longer the reverse, which is you assume they're in unless they opt out. Uh, it puts uh, the much more burden on the unions, which, of course, they don't like. So a lot of states are coming up with rules, which I think courts will strike down eventually, but they're trying to frustrate the ruling of the court. It's a little bit like uh, standing in the schoolhouse door, you know, fighting integration decisions. Uh, the Supreme Court has ruled that's it. So I'm very concerned about this. We'll be tracking this around the states, but if listeners uh, are aware of this or something going on in their states or interested... Again, send us an email. Okay, Claude? Absolutely. And you can get that email. Uh, it's uh, BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. And uh, let's talk, since we are uh, uh, got, got uh, the second part of our interview with Phil Steele. And by the way, Phil Steele, college football expert par excellence, uh, will be joining us again later in the month, just before the season. But we have the second part of the interview we did with them just a bit ago. But uh, I want to say something about Urban Meyer in the situation at Ohio State, and I know you're following this. Yes. Um, part of this I don't get. Uh, let me just say, first of all, for those of you who uh, were part of our radio audience, we had a lot of fun kidding Ohio State fans. Well, because making, they're so passionate. I mean, They're so passionate, and sometimes passion is goes overflow, overflows. Correct. You know, the Buckeye Nation and all that. A bit over the top. A bit over the top, and we used to react to this. Wow. But uh, it's a great program, obviously. Yeah. It's a wonderful football program. Meyer's a great coach. I, I don't particularly warm to the guy. I'm not a great fan of his. I am a big fan of uh, Nick Saban. But but you got to give it to him. The guy is great. And someone made the point the other day, what's a great coach? You know, you get all that talent at Ohio State. They're going to win nine or ten games anyway. You know what they said? They said, yep, you win nine or ten games uh, with just about any coach. But you win 11 or 12 with Urban. That's right. That's 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 and you're playing for a few national championships. So the accusation is that he didn't report uh, and uh, take action against an assistant coach who was uh, allegedly beating his wife or abusing his wife. He admitted if I follow this right, Claude, he admitted to looking into the situation in 2009 but then at a press conference a week or two ago, he said, when asked about the incidents in 2015, uh, no, I, you know, I don't know anything about that. And then on Friday, last Friday, he said, uh, yeah, yeah, I failed at that press conference. Uh, I did know about it, and it was reported through proper channels. Right. So it's pretty confusing now what's going on. Uh, do I have the facts pretty much straight as far as you know? Right. As far as I know, um, the uh the assistant coach uh, who is accused of this um, has kind of defended Coach Meyer, saying, you know, um, uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, he believes that uh, they talked about it and that he's not uh, hiding anything. Now, it looks like Ohio State did release a statement saying that they're going to have this whole thing wrapped up in about 14 days. They've got an independent uh, panel together to investigate it. That's right. That's yeah. right. They got a really uh, very impressive uh, panel, as far as I can tell. 
And so and, it's all about who, who did he know? When did he know? Because apparently his wife and the uh, victim here uh, were really close, and she confided in the wife. And so, well, did Urban know? Did the wife tell him? Well, did the coach tell? What did he? What exactly did he know? Uh, there was an incident, I think, in 2009 that he knew about before it, uh, when he was a assi- graduate assistant at Florida. Uh, and so it's all a who knew what, when, and what did Urban say? What was the truth in the 2015 press conference and all that? Yeah, I'd be curious. And I, you know, again, presumption of innocence here. Um, and this gets very complicated. I, I, I was reading an article that suggested all these coaches now, these head coaches, are checking their contracts because apparently in most of these contracts in the public universities at least, there's a paragraph that says, you know, any violations of Title IX, equal treatment of women that come to your attention. And that's not just in the sports field, but I guess, you know, situations of marital abuse and so on are, are covered by this. I don't know if that was clear to Urban Meyer uh, or not or clear to these other coaches. But the lawyer for the coach who was uh, fired, the guy who is the husband in question, the, the alleged abuser, says this is all going to be clarified soon when you see the full record. What's confusing here is there are a lot of people just jumping on Meyer and just saying he's guilty and he, you know, he didn't do what he should have. But the um, the assistant coach says that uh, there were so many police calls by the uh, by his wife that they stopped coming. That's not to say that some of her complaints didn't have merit. It could be a complicated situation. Um if the rules were vague and if he remembered incorrectly at the press conference saying he didn't remember anything about 2015, then he corrected it on Friday. You know, he should just say, I'm really sorry. I got it wrong, but I did do what I was supposed to do. Or if he didn't do what he was supposed to do, I wasn't completely sure of what I was supposed to do. Looks like these coaches have an obligation to look into any matter involving anybody in their staff that involves inappropriate uh, behavior, um, particularly in the Title IX context. I'm just wondering how how generally aware people might be of that. Do you see my point, Claude? You know, I see your point, and I think that that's the reason why it's worth waiting to pass judgment on whether or not Urban Meyer took the correct measures and the appropriate measures and what he remembers and what he n- knew and, and just wait until the investigation happens, which should be like the Ohio yeah. State said it's going to take 14 days. Let's just wait and see what happened again before we, we pass judgment. Folks, so quick to do that nowadays. I know. I put a marker on your calendar for, um, you know, like the, the middle of the month or a little past the middle, like 18th or something. Let's uh, let's revisit this. Let's when the commission comes out. Let's let's comment again. Revisit the issue for the audience. Okay. Exactly. Meantime, any folks in Ohio want to weigh in? What's that email again? Uh, Bill Bennett Podcast at Gmail dot com. That's it. You're listening to the Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. Okay, time to jump in with Joel Farkas, director of the American Strategy Group. I'm a fellow of the American Strategy Group here in Washington. Joel, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Bill. Uh, European, this is Forbes. This is something we've been talking about on and off for the last couple months. European Union backs Eastern natural gas access. Increased LNG supplies, liquid natural gas. Uh, first paragraph, political leaders from France, Spain, and Portugal endorsed a decision by the European Union to support the supply of liquefied natural gas from North America at an energy summit held in Lisbon on Friday. What does this mean? It means that um, Europe is acting on what they've kind of avoided telling the world, but they need a lot of energy. They need secure energy. 
they need reasonably priced energy. They need energy when they can get it, not uh, something that takes decades to to discover, find, uh, make massive capital investments in. And liquefied natural gas um, really answers all those questions. It's an immediate supply, uh, almost an instantaneous supply, uh, a very low-cost supply. It actually helps replace the coal energy supplies that Europe has been relying on for so many years, so it helps CO2 emissions. It's, it's, really, a, uh, it's really a wonderful source, and it's also an abundant source. The world, many, many different com- countries in the world have uh, gas supplies which could be converted into LNG. As we've discussed before, the biggest suppliers have been Qatar and Iran and Russia, uh, not necessarily our friends, not necessarily Europe's friends, Yep. But Australia and the United States is becoming very dominant and uh, will be able to, to meet those demands and, and, and supply that, yeah. uh, that source. Yeah, I was just, I noted this because I didn't know at the, at the moment the Middle East is uh, the largest LNG producer and accounted for more than one third of all LNG production in the world in 2015. It goes on to say the shale gas boom in the United States is likely to make North America a far bigger player, however. Bigger than the Middle East? Yes, bigger that, than the Middle yeah. East. Bigger than Russia? Potentially bigger than Russia. Well, let's talk uh-huh. about that because. Um, you're interested in liquefied natural gas and oil and things, and given your businesses and your and your uh, profession, I'm interested in the politics, the geopolitics of this. What does this mean for Middle East politics? What does it mean for something we've talked about before, Russia and the United States? President Trump has exposed Europe with. Um, their their kind of hypocritical descriptions of climate accords, Paris climate accords, and and relations with Russia and other and other countries. Um, the, President Trump exposed Europe in the following way just recently at the NATO NATO talks. Germany has been a major importer of Russian natural gas. Germany is trying to double its supply with this Nord Stream two pipeline. Uh, double its imports of Russian natural gas with that pipeline. Germany's prior chancellor, Gerhard Schroeder, has an interesting new job as of about a year ago. He's the chairman of Russia's large, Russia's state-owned oil company, Rosneft. Prior to that, he was on the board of Gazprom, the Russian state-owned gas supplier. So yeah. we keep hearing in the United States how somehow Trump has colluded or has interests and has all this connection with Russia, for goodness sake, when you have a prior chancellor of Germany who is the chairman of the Russian energy company and whose party, the Social Democratic Party, is one of Angela Merkel's major coalition parties in her government, when you have that kind of connection, um, there, there's, just no, there's just no comparison as to okay. where the linkage is. Let me let me ask then: Does he have the power to interfere with uh, the competition that the United States and North America may bring to the table? Yes, he does. Um, as a matter of fact, he not only has the power; 
he has the stated interest in interfering. He um, when he yeah. was appointed, when he yeah. was appointed, his his statement was he opposes sanctions against Russia, opposes them, and also stated. Oh, for, this is uh, former Chancellor I see, Schroeder. I see, I see. We're soft on Russia, but he opposes all sanctions. I got you. Opposes all yeah. sanctions, okay. and, and he further stated that uh, he he would like to use his political experience his political experience in Europe to help the corporate sphere of Rosneft. I, I, you can't be more uh, more yeah. direct <laughs> yeah. uh, in terms of what his, his position is and what his interests are. Well, what can the U.S. and North America do? I mean, other than expose hypocrisy here, you know, you, you, you're yelling, shaking your finger at us about being soft on Russia. Meanwhile, you're giving them prime position at the pump. And, uh, or giving their pump prime position. And, and, you know, this will, this will, your guy here and company will try to block, uh, LNG imports. Is there anything else that can be done? Well, can't the market, um, address some of this? If we can produce a lot more, can't we uh, make them a better deal? And can that put yes. pressure on Schroeder? Well, it, it's going to put pressure on, I mean, Gerhard Schroeder is really, uh, answers to, to Putin. So, that's the that's the fellow okay. that you need to put pressure on. Not, not to um, Merkel, right? I mean, you just, that's interesting what you just well, said. Not to Merkel. He now answers to Putin because given his position, I guess it, it's an interesting position. He answers to Putin, and he is the the, the coalition government for Merkel uh, is what is what he used to uh, uh, preside over. However, we we do know, and, and this is because of President Trump's actions, his efforts, and his. Ex- exposing this relationship, uh, Angela Merkel is in, in, has an issue in Germany now, a political issue, because of this. She has to make a choice. Do you want to just pursue business interests that the, uh, in Germany to buy cheap gas from Russia, or do you want to consider political ramifications and Germany's stature in Europe? It is quickly becoming apparent that, that uh, Germany has to consider the latter, the political implications. And the reason why is because of what you alluded to earlier. The United States and the rest of the world can supply lower cost, more easily accessible, more attainable, competitive energy supplies than what Russia can okay. supply. Okay. Okay. So that, I mean, that, that argues that the U.S., North America may be able to break through here, right? I mean, this, this, uh, yes. I keep thinking of that moment at the press conference. I mentioned this to you before last time we talked, where the muffed press conference. I mean, the president muffed it. You know, it was, it was, it was yeah, you know, he, he should have done what he did, but, but he recovered too. But actions speak louder than words. And the actions here, I mean, I, I, the words I, 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 I'm recalling now are the Putin's words where he said, yeah, no, we welcome the U.S. in as long as prices don't plummet, right? Cause he doesn't yes. want, he doesn't want a competitive market with the U.S. Abundant supply is the best way to deal with the Russian energy industry. And, you know, Russia has basically two major pipelines that the chairman of Gazprom has been promoting. One is, uh, we all know the Nord Stream 2 pipeline we've been discussing. But there's also the Turk Stream pipeline, which takes gas to Turkey. Both of these pipelines were intended specifically to bypass the Ukraine and the Crimea area, both of them. And the intention was to bypass, uh, uh, economically starve the Ukraine from getting any transportation fees for the, for the existing pipeline, to 
uh, allow the cut off and shutting off of gas supplies from Russia to the Ukraine, their energy supplies. And that's been the stated intention, not the stated intention, the actual actions of Russia. Now, all, all our sanctions uh, on Russia were because of the Ukraine and Crimea uh, activities, and it is hurt. Our sanctions hurt Russia, but that's what they have been doing. And yet, Russia still has to make a major capital investment in those pipelines. LNG has the unique advantage of being able to be uh, take gas, liquefy it, put it on transportation ships, and take it to almost any port that has a regasification plant in the world. And we can do that. Uh, very quickly, the flexibility of this supply and the, and the low cost of this supply is what's really changing the political aspects of the world. All right. If I'm an investor uh, or producer in the U.S., I was thinking, I think I mentioned to you, I was at a dinner the other night with Harold Hamm, who's in this business, correct? Yes. And so are you, right? I mean, you're in this business. Yes, I am. Okay. Yes, I am. I don't mean to slight you. I just... No, no, uh, no. <laughs> there is six, are you a bigger the, fish yes, than Harold Hamm? I don't know. The I don't know substantial anything. difference between me and Harold Hamm. <laughs> okay. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I compared you to Phil Mickelson <laughs> earlier. Am I in the same... <laughs> I'm, I'm what they call an amateur, and right. I acknowledge uh, that I'm an amateur. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. All right. So you're looking at this, and you see there's Schroeder, and you see Russia doesn't want a big competition in the US. If I'm if I'm a developer, if I'm if I'm in the business of producing liquid natural gas, shipping liquid natural gas, is this is this a good bet? Do I want to get over there and and do this for Germany and other European nations or am I going to be frustrated all the way through? Well, you know, uh, th- that's an interesting question. Uh, you always have interesting questions, but I'm often asked, why do why am I such a supporter of the political aspects of uh, natural gas as, in, as a world energy, energy supply. And the first re- instinctive reaction is, well, you're in the business, so of course you're going to support that. Not true. Abundant supply reduces yeah, cost, reduces yeah. the price. That's yeah. not good for business. Monopolies are good for business. Sure. High prices are good. Good for you. You know, good for you. Uh, so yeah. this is not a good, necessarily a good, uh, you know, profit return on an investment. I think it's a very steady business. I think it's a it's a long term, uh, you know, good investment. But the, the reason I support it has nothing to do because of selfish, uh, selfish uh, returns. Has to do because it's a good thing to do, right? It's the right thing to do. It's the best thing to secure the future of the United States. Yeah. Good. Okay. Well, that's a that's a daggone good motive. That couldn't be, you couldn't have a better motive. That's my motive. That's my well, that's interest. Great. That's great. Well, that's why you are who you are. And uh, you're a better man than Gerhard Schroeder, I'll tell you that. Anyway, uh, yeah. uh, I'm trying to make a comparison. You don't want Phil Mickelson, you don't want Harold Hamm. I'm trying to elevate you somewhere here <laughs> in the Pantheon. I just, well, I, I, I just want to have liberty supported in America. <laughs> I, I know you're in favor of liberty and goodness. All right. All right. Let's move on. Let's move on or let's move back to the U.S. Uh, thank you. But but will you keep us surprised of, of all this? Because you're, yes. you're, you're in this business and I am fascinated by it. That's an introduction for me. You've introduced me to this topic years ago, but I'm still learning. But, but keep us posted as, so we can update the audience. Uh, we're now, seeing, uh, we're seeing, um, I mean, on a weekly basis, so much activity, so much pursuit of something that was, you know, a decade ago more just a theory. 
Yeah. Okay. We're, we're, we're uh, witnessing amazing. something amazing. Amazing. Okay. Uh, let's go to California because uh, we have another great article by Joel Kotkin, The Hollowing Out of the California Dream. Um, I want to get to that email. You guys don't re- please remind me, but here's a key paragraph. Um, progressives praise California as the harbinger of the political future, the home of a new, enlightened, multicultural America. But um, those credulous national media that present California as the great state, creating an economically just post-racial reality, don't understand that in terms of opportunity, California is evolving into something more like apartheid South Africa or the pre-civil rights South. California simply does not measure up in delivering educational attainment, I know about that, income growth, home ownership, and social mobility for traditionally disadvantaged minorities. Um, and the state is, 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 a, is a minority-populated state now. The majority is minority, uh, and we'll continue on that track. But one other thing here, and then I'll let you go. I mean, not let you go, let you talk. 28% of California's black uh, population is impoverished compared with 22% nationally. That's not uh, the American dream being hatched as the California reality. Joel? California in the month of June created 800 jobs out of a state of 40 million people. That's pathetic. Right, right, right. 800, now, not 800,000, not 8,000, 800. 800. 800 jobs. Now, not only is it a detestable future for minorities, we also see middle-class people, which, by the way, runs the racial spectrum from minorities, uh, African-Americans, Latinos, and Caucasian white people. It's, it's, the middle class is a spectrum over all races. They are abandoning the state of California. We know this. We know it. This is not a supposition. It's not a, it's not a, a hypothetical. We, we are tracking each and every month the abandonment of middle class, lower income people, too, out of the state of California. Where they're going, they're going to Nevada, they're going to Colorado, uh, uh, Arizona, Texas. They're going anywhere else than the state of California. California is doing very well with extraordinarily rich people. It is a wonderful place if you have a lot of money. If you're a middle-class person, single, individual, or family, if you're a low-income person, there's no job in that state that will allow you to live a respectable life and pay housing and energy costs in that state. Housing is singularly, along with energy, the reason why people cannot afford to live in that state. I mean, in California, Hispanics and blacks, I'm reading from the article, face housing prices that are approximately twice the national average relative to income. Unsurprisingly, African-American and Hispanic home ownership rates have dropped considerably more than those of Asians and whites, four times the rate in the rest of the country. California's white home ownership rate remains above 62%, but just 42% of all Latino households and only 33% of all black households own their own homes. Just to give you a recent recent study came out with the top 25 largest cities in the United States. In the top 10, four cities, and this study had to do with what it costs to rent a two-bedroom home. Not buy, you can't, this is not purchasing. 
what does it cost to rent a two-bedroom home, and what does your salary need to be? The top seven, your salary needed to exceed $100,000 to rent a two-bedroom home in the top seven cities. Four of them were in California, San Francisco, L.A., San Diego, San Jose. In many of those cases, San Francisco, I think, was almost almost $150,000 that you needed to make to rent a two-bedroom home in that city. Good grief. Good grief. Now, the same study showed there's a lot of places that you need to make about fifty or $60,000, yeah. maybe $7,000, and rent a two-bedroom home. And that's where people are moving. You know, the interesting thing about jobs, they're not only in... San Francisco, L.A., San Diego, and Silicon Valley, or Seattle, or Chicago, or New York, or Washington, D.C. The United States has jobs available nationwide. I just Great opportunity. The following paragraph, just to pick up on your point. In contrast, California, African Americans do far better in terms of income and home ownership in places like Dallas, Fort Worth, or Greater Houston than in, socially, than in socially enlightened locales such as Los Angeles or San Francisco. Houston and Dallas boast black home ownership rates of 40 to 50%. In deep blue, but much costlier L.A. and New York, the rate is 10 percentage points lower. Go west, young man. No. And, and home ownership. We also know that home ownership is the greatest differentiator between income inequality in the United States. The average household net worth, if you're renting in, in America, your family net worth is probably around $5,000. The average for um, those who own a home exceeds $120,000. Home ownership is a tried and true way for a family to create wealth. Now, there's been a lot of questions and concerns because we have we have markets that go up and down. But we've, we also have uh, had a lot of studies. There's a, a wonderful professor from MIT, Matthew Rockley, who studied income inequality. And we've all heard about this uh, French economist, Thomas Piketty, who sure. talks about income inequality. And well, he, he basically looked at his, his metrics, his data, his thesis, his theory, and said there is no evidence to support what he is describing. This, uh, briefly, the study that Professor Rockley came, came up with and, and, and presented was when you factor in home ownership and you take that out of what people would, you know, there's a question, lay, what, how's labor compared to capital investment income? Capital investment income is exceeding labor. Labor is, is going backwards and people who work will never, will never get ahead. That's not true. When you take out this, the, the numbers and the metrics for home ownership, capital and labor has basically fluctuated hand in glove for the last 50 years. Okay. Major differentiator is home ownership. And clearly, if you are in, in one of these major cities where it costs $150,000 to $150,000 just simply to rent something and never be able to buy a home, that is where the income inequality exists in the United States. We don't have income inequality in Des Moines, Iowa, Boise, Idaho. Okay. Nashville, Tennessee. We okay. don't have it there. Okay. We have it in these, these outrageously, outlandishly overpriced locales. Okay. I want to just throw in here because, uh, as you know, a lot of listeners pay close attention to what you say. We had an email that I hadn't thought of this, talking about mobility. Okay. An interesting email from a listener. Claude, would you read it for the benefit of the audience? Okay, so yeah, the uh, email is from Mary Folick. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, from Alexandria, Virginia. 
Uh, she says, Dr. Bennett, I enjoy your podcast and never miss an episode. I have a question for Joe Farkas the next time he is on the podcast dis- uh, discussing the cost of housing. Millennials are heavily burdened uh, with student loan debt. In some areas of the country, the cost of housing is out of reach, except uh, for the wealthiest among us. He says use, but I think she means us. Uh, Millennials are fueling the sales of RVs. With the ability to work from anywhere, are millennials buying RVs, traveling from campsite to campsite, seeing the country while lowering their housing costs and reducing their student loan debt? I didn't know that uh, uh, Claude is, of course, our crack research team. Claude, you want to look that up while Joel and I are talking? Sure, yeah, I'll look that up. I didn't know millennials were buying (laughs) RVs like crazy, but it's kind of consistent with your thesis about, talk about mobility. Go ahead, Joel. Did you know that, if it's true? Well, I'm not sure. I didn't know about RVs, but what I do know is where people are moving, and and that's what I think the question touches on. Sure, You know, it's interesting. Silicon Valley in the Bay Area, um, my, my friends who have very wonderful, large, successful companies there say that the only way, it's the center of the knowledge and innovation, and that's where you have to be if you're going to be uh, creating all this new technology. And, and it, it's curious. It's, a, it's kind of a paradox to me because if their business is, is that technology allows anyone to do anything anywhere, then why in the world do you have to live in Silicon Valley in the Bay Area? It doesn't make any sense to me. So um, I, the, the, the question suggests what people are empirically doing, and that is they can be anywhere. Anyone can be anywhere doing anything, and, they are go- and they're doing it. They're moving. Yeah. They're leaving. They're, they're, they're mobile. They're, they're versatile. And that's what we're seeing in the United States. You know, we've had a lot of disdain for the rural areas and the small towns. Well, they're doing very well these days in the United States. Okay. That's uh, Claude's got an update. Go ahead, Claude. Yeah, so there was an article uh, in December 2017 uh, for, uh, in Forbes that says, yeah, RV sales boom. Uh, the RV sale boom is fueled by millennials as they overturn the stereotypes and enjoy <laughs> uh, just getting these RVs and traveling. Apparently, the last two years, RV sales climb. Uh, RV sales have climbed fifteen percent in the U.S. Uh, and they finally broke the five hundred thousand. Mark for the first time in 2017, uh, and uh, this, I got Frank Huel Meyer. He's the president of the Recreational Vehicle Industry Association, which is in Reston, Virginia, right down the street uh, here from Washington. He says our growth is absolutely coming from young families and millennials getting into that lifestyle. That's so funny because I mean I it is. Clue. It does make the same point. I just I would remind you when you're driving there in California and you get 40 mile an hour RV in front of you, don't when you pass them say, "Hey, Gramps." Get off the road. You might say, hey, dude. Hey, dude. Congratulations. Good for them. Good yeah, for, no good kidding. For <laughs> isn't that interesting, though? This is what a free society does, isn't it? They just they say, okay. You know, there, there she is writing from Alexandria. That's one of the big cities you're talking about, metro areas. Just get in the RV and, get, you know, connect your computer, go online, do your work. You know, leave San Jose, for Pete's sakes. <laughs> Yeah, they, they figured it out. They didn't have to have the government get it right for them. Oh, they, that's they, so they funny. came up with their own idea. Thank you. Thank you. What's the lady's name, uh, Claude? Mary Folick in Alexandria, Virginia. I think we both tip our hats to Mary, yes. don't we, Don't we, Joel? Really a nice, uh, thank you, fun, way to, fun way to make the point, isn't it? Thank you for the question. It's yeah. uh, very, yeah. very insightful. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah. All right. I want to close here um, with this because... Um, uh, humorous uh, fact aside, and it's an interesting fact. Um, 
you know, as you well reminded us, like you're in the in the gas business, you know, liquid natural gas and the profit margins may be less, but it's good for America. And we admire that. Most important questions, you know, what, what serves the country. So here's California advertising itself as, you know, the place where, you know, give me your poor and your hungry and your benighted and so on. But this paragraph in this article by Joel Kotkin, be sure we put this up on the site, Claude, too. The lack of affordable housing and the disappearance of upward mobility, disappearance of upward mobility, could create a toxic racial environment for California. By the 2030s, large swaths of the state, particularly along the coast, could evolve into a geriatric belt, an affluent older boomer population served by a largely minority service worker class. Man, that's that's happening now, isn't it? Two-thirds of every municipal jurisdiction in the state of California along the coast, two-thirds, more than that, have housing restrictions, new development restrictions, some sort of uh, instituted law to preclude new construction of housing. When you don't build new housing, what you have there is going to be more and more expensive. Yeah. This turns us into a country other than America. So, so, and, and, and to that point, the, the, the political policies of the state of California is not to create more jobs or more housing opportunities for middle-class and lower-middle-class workers. It is to basically solve the problem by redistribution. What are they redistributing? They say, you don't have something, we're going to take some money and give it to you. We're guaranteed minimum income. Guaranteed minimum income. We yeah. want minimum wage. We want yeah. rent control. Yeah. Yeah. None of that increases uh, the abundance of any of the, of the, the things that we're lacking in right. particular housing. It right. does not increase it. It just redistributes. And it's, um, you know, it's an, it's an interesting, uh, uh, what was, if I can close with something that President Trump has succeeded with, yet another in a long list of successes. The question was, uh, are, is his economy going to create more jobs? And maybe the answer is we need to educate people more, or we need to do the other things I just mentioned. Well, what we've seen, what we're seeing right now, right now in the United States is employers are relaxing the educational requirements for yes. for, for new, new hires. Yes. Uh, um, because they need people and they want to hire people. The, the other test. thing they're relaxing. The drug test, too, right? The drug test, too, yeah. being softened. Yes. Yeah. The other thing they're relaxing is the minimum uh, work requirement experience. So instead of some, you know, how do you apply for a job if you don't have a college degree and you don't have three to five years of work experience? Well, guess what? In America today, there's plenty of jobs open for those who yeah. have no work experience and no college education. Yeah. We are witnessing something that the economists never thought we, could happen. And that is, that is the, the market. That is the market of President Trump's economy, yes. Yes. creating more opportunities for lower income and middle class Americans. No, absolutely. Uh, and I didn't mean to interject there on the drug thing that this was, you know, oh, no, minimum, no, that's, was a, ba- a bad thing. That's but important. It, but it's, it's going to mean more people are going to be hiring, and then some of these people are going to be laid off because these companies seriously need workers. And uh, with with the changes here, I think you're going to you're going to see that. But no, it is it is remarkable. I just want to come back to this because I well, want I want to, I want to go ahead. Say one, if I could add one sure, more, sure, sure, no, no, sure, and then I got one last question for you. When, when the economy was doing poorly a decade ago, um, companies increased their standards for hires. Yes, because they could. 
Yes. Well, today companies are are what they call downskilling their standards. Downskilling, which is okay. we. It's a kind of a goofy phrase, but they don't they don't have the luxury any longer of putting in uh, you know unreasonably yeah. high bars to to yeah. cross. And and again, these are these are things that we're witnessing today, and it's interesting. And we'll talk about it next month, and we'll see new. New yeah. examples of this. But can I, can I bring out the unambiguously good point here? Uh, let's just take my insertion there and want it to distract. But supposing you do have pretty good qualifications or good qualifications, and supposing you are drug-free and pass a drug test, you can really succeed in this economy because you can get oh. hired and promoted. Yes. <laughs> you right? are, I mean, have unlimited I mean, opportunity. Right, as as you downskill, the people with upskills are going to be generously rewarded. Yes. Okay. That is, and and that is and and to 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 close the loop on my comment to the professor from MIT, that's not going to create more income inequality. What it will allow yeah. are more workers to be able to uh, purchase homes, raise a family, and create more wealth. This yeah. is this is not this is because one other person is succeeding even more does not mean that's right. that the other people are are, are not are not staying staying in lockstep with them. That's right. That's right. Jack Kemp's pie it gets bigger. It's not just a static yes. pie, right? I want to come back Correct. to this though the larger question because you um, well I mean we've been kidding about this but um, <laughs> you're a great golfer but you're not Phil Mickelson or Tiger Woods. You're a great businessman maybe not at Harold Ham's level just yet. Um, but, but we'll <laughs> thank see. you, thank you, thank you. And you're a, an astute Californian, but most of all, you're you're an American, a lover of America. That's how I know you. But this toxic environment, the geriatric belt with an affluent older boomer population served by a largely minority service worker class. If this is the future of California, it's it's a terrible specter. If it's the future of America, it's many times worse. I, I would just point out, I'm just listening closely to you, People, a lot of people who could leave California have left. You know, upper class people, some wealthy people, the tax stuff, middle class people. These very poor minority people, they can't move. They don't have the means. It's interesting. Um, thankfully, the United States has uh, uh, citizens of a failed state, and California is on the road to being a failed state. They have an, they have an option. They got forty nine other opportunities. Okay. Even the very poor minority. Even the very poor, okay. yes. Okay, so it's, it's um, the reverse now, other of the, countries, dust, the dust belt. I'm thinking of Steinbeck, you know, Grapes of Wrath. Yeah. You know, Oklahoma countries, they set out for California to find the American dream. Now you can have these poor folks setting out from California back to Oklahoma to get a good job. Yes, and, and you know, other countries, they don't have that opportunity. If, okay. if, you know, if, if they're failing in that country, they have to leave that country. In the United States, there's plenty of other places to go. And these other places to go who are hiring people with no experience no work experience and no no college education you, you can you can you can earn okay. plenty of money to afford to okay. live there and that's the that's the beauty of the United States it's the desperate circumstance of California but, but just because the state is failing doesn't mean the people okay. are failing all right, so you're right. I stand, I stand corrected. I, I think you'd concede to me that for people who are poor, these very poor minority groups and so on, uh, it's harder. 
It's harder to move. Oh, I, I don't want to dismiss your but, comment. But it's more essential it is to move. Harder. But they're not trapped. It, it, it's just harder. It is harder. It but is, all the more reason for them to move, too, right? Because it's harder. Yes, and, and I think, uh, you know, I, I think I agree with your point. Uh, I absolutely agree with your point that it is harder. I, I think that what I would, <laughs> back to, I would really like for these this group of people we're talking about to obtain the knowledge, obtain the information, yeah, to know world. they have a choice. There's Not a listen to their elected officials who are submitting to them this nonsense that they have. That this is it. This is where you are, this, yeah. and we're going to help you. They're not going. These, these elected officials in California are not going to help you. There are other places in the United States where you can obtain okay. a future. Oh, that's very important. I mean, uh, you know, it'd be nice if Governor Brown said we've really messed up here, and uh, you're getting shafted. You'd be better off going back to Oklahoma. Or about going to Oklahoma, but they won't say that. This is really if I read another article, Bill, that the uh, that the center of knowledge and future of social justice in the world is in San Francisco or L.A. or Silicon Valley. I think I'm going to scream. I'm going to lose my voice. I know. Scream to us. We got a microphone to amplify your scream. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Thank you, Bill. That was Joel Farkas, director of the American Strategy Group. As I mentioned before, I'm a fellow of the American Strategy Group here in Washington. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Let's change direction. Let's go up north. Conrad Black, author and non-affiliated member of the House of Lords, uh, joins us now. Uh, wonderful essays. We're going to put uh, two of them from the 19th and the 22nd up on the website. Let's, let's jump in on the second one. Um, Helsinki and its aftermath. First, uh, tell us, Helsinki, say what needs well, to be said. Look, I, I noted your comments with uh, one of the Fox uh, hosts the other night that, that he, the president misspoke and he clarified that, corrected it, and moved on. And, and I, I guess that's, I, I think that's probably right. But I thought what he was really saying was that, yes, he was perfectly aware that Russian state uh, it w- was uh, inconveniencing the United States and not an ally, but that in fact, well, he did not believe exactly Putin's version of things. On the matter of um, Russian activities in the United States and in respect of the last presidential election, that he thought that Putin was closer to the truth than Brennan and Clapper were. I thought that was what he was really saying. And I thought that was one of the reasons that that the uh, the most anti-Trump political factions responded as, as irrationally as they did. I mean, he was basically saying, yes, Putin's a dictator. Yes, he's no friend of the United States. Yes, he lies much of the time. But the fact is, on this one, he's closer to the facts than, than our former intelligence directors. To clarify that the fact that not much happened, didn't have much effect, is closer to a denial that any interference occurred than to this uh, shook the world and maybe affected the election. Yeah, and and uh, um, and then the the other message that that was obscured in the controversy over uh, the interpretation of what he said on on the subject of uh, the extent to which there was Russian interference is that I think he sees quite clearly that it is relatively easy to resolve the United States' differences with Russia. Uh, and that Russia is not, in fact, a serious threat. It has a GDP smaller than Canada's. It is a basket case uh, economically and, and outside the two largest cities. And uh, it, it has a lot of nuclear weapons, but, but 
you know, so what? The U.S. has a great many more and has a substantial ability to uh, to intercept nuclear weapons fired out of the heaven for fin that we should ever have to test that. Um, and you know, again, I don't think the president would think of it in these terms. But it seems to me that what Putin is doing, being a you know someone who's roughly the same vintage as you, that. It's a little like General de Gaulle trying to remind everybody that France was back after the debacle of 1940 when he founded the Fifth Republic, made it a stable country with a solid currency, developed nuclear weapons, and started to you know, use its influence in the world in a way that it had not done since before the war. Uh, that Now, he did it in a very elegant and generally quite responsible way. And when crises came up, he was a reliable ally, as in the Cuban Missile Crisis, for instance. But... Uh, and, and Putin, you know, was never an ally of the U.S. the way or his country wasn't uh, since the war, the way France was. But he's trying to convince his public and to a degree the world that Russia is a more important country than it really is, having gone through this trauma in national terms of losing the majority of its population and the disintegration of the Soviet Union. And uh, and Trump sees that the fact is Russia in the argument that's gone on in that country since Peter the great time between the nativists like Tolstoy and Solzhenitsyn and the Western emulators like Boris Yeltsin, for instance, that we want the West to win and we want Russia in the Western world and and uh, and we want to settle our differences with it as long as we can do it in a way that's not damaging to fundamental American and allied interests and uh, and not push them into the arms of the Chinese. And, and, uh, and, and I think that's a very intelligent policy, and I, it, but it's just terribly difficult to carry out when you've got this nonsense going on uh, in the United States in, in its domestic politics about relations with Russia. And, uh, and, and in, in fairness, Mr. Trump doesn't address these questions with quite the persuasiveness that, for example, Henry Kissinger does. Yeah, I, sure. I mean, I agree with uh, the th- things you've said, your analysis, but the press conference was not adroit. It was no, no. It, it, was, it, was, it was a mistake. I, and and and. Uh, but on the other hand, I think it's blown over. I think uh, yeah, sure it has. I, I don't think there, I never thought there would be any lasting effect of these things. There never is in these instant controversies with, with President Trump. I mean, Charlottesville. Uh, if you watch the media for yeah. a few days after that, when as far as I could see, all he did was say, "Yes, the the so-called neo-Nazis and the Klan are terrible, but Antifa's no prize either." And that's basically what he was saying. Um, you know, he could have been clearer. You you would have thought that that he was absolutely on the ropes. He had Carl Icahn and all these people. I mean, great civil libertarian as Carl is, yeah. retiring from some cultural committee or some damn thing in the White House. Yeah, right. And and so you know, Trump abolished the committees. But you'd think he was under siege. But no one, I don't think five percent of Americans would remember that controversy today. Yeah, well, and one one reason is, and I'm not, as you know, I'm not critical of President Trump. But one reason is he creates another issue the next day. I mean, it's it's a it's a kind of reverse whack-a-mole, you know. It's a traveling circus. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but, but, you didn't like this one? How about this one, you know? <laughs> no, but also it is, it is they aren't substantial problems. He could have put it I mean, he started out saying, look, the people who wanted to keep General Lee's statue there were reasonable people who respected General Lee. 
uh, and then it got completely out of control with these extremists. But I mean, he just didn't say it right. Uh, and 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 I don't know why he doesn't take a little more care of the way he once he gets into areas that he knows are sensitive and he knows how hostile the Washington press corps is to him that he he didn't play it more carefully. And and I would say the same about Helsinki. He could have avoided all of that if he just formulated one sentence differently. Yeah. But but the point is they're just they're just clumsy wordsmithing. It's it's not it's not a it's not a policy error or, or a a legitimate controversy. Again, I come back to what that journalist, uh, Selena Zito, said during the campaign. Uh, his critics uh, you know, listen to what he says, but they don't have any idea what he means. And his supporters yeah. don't pay much attention to what he says, but they love well, what he Well, he's, he's not, I guess he's not been in the habit of, uh, of the kind careful. of precision yeah. that yeah. people in that position need to, need to have. And he also thinks, I, saw, I don't know if you saw any of the speech last night he gave in Tampa, but he said, no, I'm not like your other presidents. He said, all right, I'm going to be your other president. Okay, I'm boring you to death. I'll see you later. And he starts to walk <laughs> off the stage. You know, there's just this ridiculous parody. But okay, fair enough. You know, fair enough. <laughs> no, but it's like when he, I, it, the first time I saw something like that was when he re- referred, I, I think he was contemplating re- running, you know, in the Reform Party with a wrestler from Minnesota and Ross Perot. And he referred yep. to, yep. he referred to, um, uh, what uh, the, the Al Gore, I guess, and George W. Bush, and and uh, John McCain, and uh, Senator Bradley. I think those were the four contenders, and, and he, he referred to them as a bunch of stiffs. And I see, I don't think I'd heard the word stiffs yeah, yeah. in some movie of Jimmy Cagney's or something. You know? <laughs> stiffs. No, it's right. great. No, he's bringing back he's bringing back a lot of things. But let's let's talk about the effect of Helsinki on his. Um, on his critics, I mean, just uh, again, uh, they they went nuts. They went crazy. Uh, end of the world. And and as as you pointed out last time we talked, and you you reminded me in what you just said when you talked about Charlottesville, one could bring up the separating of parents from children at the border. It, you know, we need the hysterometer or something, hysterical meter to measure, you know, which crisis he precipitates that sends them most over the edge or over the farthest edge. Uh, I, I agree, I, but you, I, they still think they, the the really virulently Trumpophobic media around Washington, and I, I, I guess in some other places in New York and LA and so on, they 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 can't resist the temptation to believe that Trump could be brought down from one day to the next, that he is a complete fraud. Uh, that he doesn't stand for anything, that he has no real support other than from, from a few plumbers and truck drivers, who, who occupations that are frankly often more useful than the ones that they hold, but that's beside the point. That's not how they see it. And and um, when you need a plumber, Bill, you need a plumber. You don't need a movie actor. Yeah, yeah. But right, the, right. the uh, it's only someone who's lived in England knows the truthfulness of that. But the, um, uh, so they, they think that each one of these things that they, that they torque up to a terrific level, as you say, a hysterical level, is actually going to bring him down. And they, they don't get the message that it's just water off a duck's back. I mean, there's there's nothing lasting about it. His conduct belies the allegations they made against him, and the country forgets it. And the more they, you know, not to overuse that, that old metaphor, but the more they cry wolf, the less believe they are that there's a wolf there. Yeah, and I noticed the locution changing a little bit from, uh, you know, oh, how bad is this? And 
what do you think of this? Now I, I notice on CNN because I watch it every day for at least 20 minutes. I, th I think it You're was. You're a braver man than I am. Yeah, I think it was uh, Samuel Johnson who said, do something painful every day for 15 minutes. It will make pain much easier when you. When it's forced on you, something like that. Anyway, but I do it whether I what, for what he called the toothache. I mean, if, if you or I had a toothache, we'd say I have a toothache. But he said, ah, the toothache. I mean, it's just all oh, the is. Yeah, it, it, it was the demonization of one particular ailment. God you know, knows, you know that's enough fun. You know that story about him and his son. I put it in the book of virtues that uh, Johnson one day was moving his books down to his office and asked his son to help him, and the son was too lazy and begged off. And after he died, the son uh, every year on his birthday would go down to where the uh, office was and stand outside, even if pouring rain, to do penance for having let his father down on that day. Uh, there, I, I don't know if it's true or not, but it's a wonderful, wonderful story. Of course, he's—you know—we could spend hours talking about him and yep. what he thought. I wanted—I wanted you to give a history lesson. You and I do a lot of Trump talk, but something in in your last essay, very important. Um, you mentioned movie actor. I know you didn't mean to disparage Reagan because you talk about him, and I know you're, you're right, high regard for president. him. But the attempt to minimize. But he never did that. I mean, I'm no, sorry no. to interrupt you, but when no, he no, actually no. was an actor, he never intervened in politics the way these people do. Like no, that's right. That's Warren right. Beatty no, no, that's or right. Meryl Streep or something. Sorry, I didn't. No, no, the interruption is good. And do you know what Mrs. Frankfurter said of Felix Justice Frankfurter when he spoke? <laughs> No, this will be good. She said, Felix makes two mistakes when he speaks. First, he digresses from his text. Second, he returns to it. Margaret Thatcher once said of an obscure British politician to, to me, not to the public, he always makes a mistake when he speaks. He opens his mouth. That's it. That's it. But do the history lesson because... You're talking about Trump in the same breath as Reagan and Roosevelt. Liberals, of course, don't like Reagan, though they're prepared to acknowledge his accomplishments. So the conservatives don't acknowledge uh, FDR. Talk about where he is on that Mount Rushmore and why. And why Roosevelt uh, and Reagan both belong there. They should be up in Mount Rushmore, I think. But the, uh, if I've got room for them. But the, um, uh, yeah, Trump at this point, as you know, when historians rate the American presidents, they leave out William Harrison and James A. Garfield because they, they were only, they had too brief a tenure and they never really got to be president before they died. And, uh, and the, the shortest tenure of a president who is rated is, is Zachary Taylor. And he, he was only the president for 16 months. And Trump has passed that, so it, I mean, goodness knows we don't want this, and it would be terribly unfortunate if it happened. But if for any reason he ceased to be president now, just you know, he had an accident or something, and or a stroke or something, and uh, I think he would he would stand in. I mean, he hasn't been there, done enough to be a great president. I think he would stand in that category, uh, the next category of a very an unusually talented president who had accomplished a lot in a short time. And if he if he can enact essentially his program, and in, in whatever reservations there may be, and, and I understand the reason for them, about his candor or even the truthfulness of what he says, the greater criterion of judging the integrity of a politician, I think, is the extent to which he does when elected what he promised he would do before he was elected. And by that measurement, he is the most honest one in my time in the United States. Uh, 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 and I think if he just continues with that and is 
reasonably successful as he has been at, at getting his program established and installed, I think he will be, uh, he could be at the Reagan level, which I would put as uh, an outstanding president just behind the traditional big three of, in order of taking office, Washington, Lincoln, and Franklin D. Roosevelt. I mean, uh, if if Trump gets that program uh, in place, I I have no doubt that most of it will work. I think in in policy terms, he's almost always right, other than some of this extreme uh, fervor about law enforcement, uh, which I think he's starting to rethink in some ways as he unmasks the corruption of the criminal justice system. Uh, A great national service, by the way. But I, I, I I I think he has... I think he has a chance. I think he would have achieved more than, say, Theodore Roosevelt did or Harry Truman did or Dwight Eisenhower did, and they were all good presidents. I just want you to, to, if you will, lecture for a couple of minutes on Roosevelt, the greatness vis-a-vis one thing you talked about in your essay, uh, his, his handling of Stalin, which is now dismissed by some people or forgotten by some people. Very, very but important. The, the, there is what I call the Yalta myth. And it it was formed by four different groups, not coordinating with each other, but acting towards the same goal for different reasons. Disgruntled British imperialists claiming that that despite Mr. Churchill's heroic arguments to to, uh, be wary of post-war Russia, uh, that Roosevelt gave away Eastern Europe to Russia. Um, the McCarthyite Republicans, or even somewhat less extreme partisan Republicans, who who got so tired of being walloped at the polls by Roosevelt and Truman, they confected this myth that, uh, in, in the most extreme formulation, as Senator McCarthy said, General Marshall, a great soldier statesman, had given, conspired in giving Eastern Europe to Stalin, China to the communists. Uh, the third group were were the uh, sort of Gaullist poseurs, led by de Gaulle himself, a great man though he was in many ways, um, who who uh, tried to imply that the Anglo-Saxons couldn't be relied upon to defend Europe. Only the French really could do that in cooperation with the reliable Germans, and the proof of it was that Churchill and Roosevelt together gave Eastern Europe to Stalin. And the fourth group were these pseudo allies who were really neutrals at heart, like Willy Brandt and Pierre Trudeau, who claimed that there was no point being particularly strong-minded opposite the Russians because uh, Roosevelt and Churchill had given Eastern Europe to Stalin. It was Russia's zone of influence. So Trudeau went went padding around, uh, currying favor with people like Ceausescu and and. Uh, uh, other Eastern, uh, East European leaders, satellite leaders, and um, it was all nonsense. The fact is, if you if you look at it, uh, Roosevelt wanted the earliest possible invasion of northern France, and, and he didn't he, he didn't subscribe to Churchill's fear of an operation there or his attachment to the Mediterranean. And he did not want the European Advisory Commission to decree or agree the zones of occupation of Germany because his view was that once the Western Allies were across the Rhine, the Germans would fight like tigers in the east to keep the Russians back and cave in in the west in order to surrender to civilized countries. And that is effectively what happened. Yeah. And 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 if the declaration 
the Alta Declaration on Liberated Europe and on Poland guaranteed the freedom of those countries. That's what Stalin committed to. And uh, when when the next summit meeting post-war after Potsdam, 10 years later at Geneva, opened, Eisenhower, the, the Americans are always the chair because they're the only head of state there. Uh, you know, I mean, the British monarch isn't there and the Soviet president wasn't there. So... Eisenhower began, even though his party had been elected, complaining right. about Yalta, began by demanding that the USSR live up to its Yalta commitments. This is a complete lie, a historical libel of, of colossal proportions. Roosevelt had no particularly great regard for Russia, for, for Stalin. He sort of hoped for the best, but he knew who he was dealing with. And I think we should focus more on the fact that in the summer of 1940, Germany, Italy, France, and Japan were all anti-democratic, anti-Anglo-American countries. And five years later, all of them were in our hands on the way, I mean, the hands of the Western yeah. military, uh, on the way to being flourishing democratic allies of ours. And all Stalin got, having taken 95% of the casualties and 99% of the physical damage in subduing Nazi Germany, all he got for it was temporary occupation of, I mean, it's a terrible tragedy for those countries, but uh, rather mediocre strategic assets yeah. in Eastern Europe. And, and you know, except for the Czechs, none of them was a democracy. Yeah. I mean, Britain and France and Canada went to war for Poland, but the United States didn't. Yeah. Roosevelt didn't have any, or Truman, any obligation to pull a chestnut's head for, for, for these shabby little dictatorships, you know, uh, yeah. Antonescu and Horthy and these people. And, and uh, it, the whole thing was a smear job. And, and I, I mean, Bill, you and I are historians. Let's talk the facts here. Roosevelt was the chief architect of that policy. Yeah. We got Stalin, as his own treachery came back to smite him because of the Nazi-Soviet pact. He facilitated the outbreak of the war. And, and, and we got Stalin in the end to take most of, pay most of the bills in human misery for for subduing Germany, and we got the spoils. Yeah, yeah, yeah nine, it was, and I never did the numbers. It jarred me when I read it in your essay. Nine, he took 95% of the casualties. Is that about right? Yeah, millions and millions of yeah, dead. I mean, yeah. it was a savage war. I mean, Leningrad, there were no, there were, there were no uh, you know, Geneva Convention rules observed. Stalingrad, Leningrad, right, principally. Yeah, and, and, and in addition to that, uh, the Germans massacred a right. huge number of, course. of people in occupied Soviet territory. Of course, of course. I, uh, Roosevelt credit, too, Right for in my writing uh, of my book, I, I, I just give him a lot of credit for you know not, not as quickly as Churchill would have liked, but he did bring us into that war, and there was a ton of opposition to it in the United States. He moved opinion very steadily and, right. and very cleverly. I mean, uh, you know, his famous uh, address on Navy Day, October twenty seventh, nineteen forty one. You know, Germany has fired the first shot. What matters is who fired the last shot. That was fine, Mister President. He didn't say that the the uh, ship the Germans sunk, the British, uh, the American warship had been busy depth-charging a German submarine. I mean, the U.S. wasn't at war with Germany. Yeah. Roosevelt moved territorial waters out from three miles to 1,800 miles. And then he ordered the U.S. Navy to attack on detection any German ship. Yeah. And to the other side, under Lindley's, he gave the British and Canadians anything they asked, starting with 26,000 warplanes, and said you can pay for it when you can pay for it. All right. Let's come back. As a member of the House of Lords, I was present for the authorization of the last payment. And the Lord Chancellor led, uh, he, he, he read the statement 
that Mr. Churchill moved in March of 1941, the resolution of thanks to the President and the Congress and the people of the United States for Lend-Lease. It was a very moving occasion. When was that? When was that? I think it was 2001. Yeah, 2001 or 2002. No, 2002. That's it. It was uh, 60 years. That's great. Well, thank you for the lesson. Thanks for reminding us. Hardly a lesson. No, no, no. no, It was just a monologue. Listen, what people don't know, you know, I I, I talk about all the reluctance to join the war. People don't know about that. They don't know about Lindbergh. He's an unassailable hero. Uh, Ask... Ten American, any ten Americans at random who are Kennedy people, whether they know about Joe Kennedy, you know, in London. Well, he, he, he was a defeatist and, and a, something of a fascist sympathizer. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's let's round this out. We got we got to let you go. I got to let me go too. But um, so so your evaluation of Trump at, at at a year and a half is he would be close to that stature if he finishes and keeps going strong. You Foreign think he will be? Can I say one other thing about Absolute, Absolutely. He was, in his way, a conservative, and he thought of himself that way. He said, I am the greatest friend American capitalism has ever had. Yeah. And, and the, these pure capitalists forget that the, the system had collapsed when he came in. All the banks, stock exchanges, commodity exchanges were closed, right. except in two states, banks would allow withdrawals of only $10. That, that's all that was left of the system. The whole system had collapsed. There were one-third of the workforce was unemployed, and there was no direct relief for them. None. They, they could starve, they could beg, or they could rob, and that was it. And uh, he had to deal with, with a really horrible crisis. He salvaged, to be arbitrary, 95% of the system uh, that, that, that all capitalists support. Now, he made some errors, I, I agree, but as, as crisis management, it was a 99% score. As economics, it was only about two-thirds. But meanwhile, he did eliminate all unemployment before the U.S. entered the war. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, greatness is in his future, very possibly. Right. He's already put down enough of a record to suggest he could be on target for that. I, I, uh, Trump, I think Trump could be. Yeah. I, I doubt if he'd get to the FDR. That's up there with Lincoln and Washington. Sure, but sure. I, I think he could certainly get to the get. You know, it's up to Reagan. But I think certainly he has quite legitimately will be a he could aspire to be at the very front of the Jefferson Jackson, despite his banishment from the currency. Yeah. Um, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, Wilson, Truman, Eisenhower, and in my opinion, Nixon, if you discard that nonsense about Watergate, he was a damn good president. You know. I think he could get it to the front of that group. I'll put Nixon in if he'll take Wilson out. Okay. We'll talk about that. Sometime. All right. He inspired the masses of the world with the vision of enduring peace. Yeah. He was a great intellectual. I accept <laughs> it ended tragically. And he was—he uh, had the problems of an intellectual, and he was a racist to boot. Our two sons went to Princeton. I happened to dig in, and I shouldn't have. I, I didn't—I didn't insist his statue come down, but or nor, nor that they rename the Woodrow Wilson Center. But anyway, um, George Will used to tell me that all all Princetonians are either Madisonians or Wilsonians. Yeah, well, that, that may be that may be true. That may be true. So um, I got to tell you, I don't know what it is, but every time we talk, and I'm. I listen attentively. It's so high-minded, uh, elevated language and discourse. It brings out something. You bring out the tacky American in me, and so I'm going to end with this one. <laughs> I don't know if you were watching Fox this morning, but somebody, so. some great Trump fan, I think people just do this to drive the liberals nuts, has yeah. done a painting 
and they put it next to Washington crossing the Delaware of, of Trump crossing the swamp. Have you seen this? In, 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 no, yeah. Oh, you got to look. A boat pointing forward. Yeah, and yeah it's yeah. a swamp. And he's looking. He's got a lantern and he's got some of the cabinet. And John Bolton is the tail gunner sort of standing behind him with a, with a rifle. You got to look at it. Only only in America. And they yeah, look, it's a, there's no, no country in the world like it. That's what we do. That's how we that's how we celebrate greatness. <laughs> look, part of the American mythos is nonsense. But what is not nonsense is that it's a country that for over a century is operated on a scale that the world had never imagined to be possible. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And we'll still do it in good taste or not. Anyway, exactly. thank you, Conrad Black. Thank you, Lord Black. Thank you, sir. No, not a bit. Thanks. Bill. Oh, let's Mr. get the Secretary. title of the Roosevelt book. It escapes my mind for the moment. What is it? Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Champion of Freedom. Champion of Freedom by Conrad yeah. Black. Thank you, sir. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Joining me now is Phil Steele, creator of the Phil Steele College Football Preview Magazine. And he's an ESPN insider. This is part two of our college football preview. Let's jump back in. Let's talk about Washington because, again, in this conversation the other night, people say, "Well, I always talk about these guys. But they get to the they get to the playoffs or close to the playoffs. They don't they don't do it." You've got them ranked number four, Washington. Uh, talk about them a little bit. Yeah, I think it's Chris Peterson's best team he's put on the football field at Washington. He's got 17 returning starters this year. And keep in mind, two years ago, they were not ranked in the preseason top 10. I had them as my number one surprise team, and they made the playoffs. Yeah, yeah, and had they yeah. not been banged up, and had Browning not thrown the interception right before the half, they probably would have given Alabama a much better game than they did in the uh, 24-7 playoff loss. But right. this is Pat- or Peterson's best team. Jake Browning, two years ago, threw 43 touchdown passes. Now, last year, he had a below average year. He only had 19 touchdown passes the entire year. He's back. I think he'll regain that 2016 form. They've got Miles Gaskins in the running back spot, a veteran offensive line. Defensively, they got nine starters coming back. They play Auburn in the opener. That's going to be right. interesting. It's in right. Atlanta. Auburn's going to have the crowd edge there. But I think if they get past that, they'll be favored in all the rest of their games this year. And I did pick Washington to make the playoffs again. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I was going to say that opening. Uh, is it the opening game? Uh, Auburn. Opening, opening game against Auburn. Yeah, yeah. In Atlanta. Well, good for them for scheduling them too. You know, I, I admire that. Uh, okay, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. Uh, you know, I almost started with this and could spend 20 minutes. I was delighted to see. I'm sure this isn't my influence. You know, your objective. You know what I'm going to say. Texas at number 10. Bless your heart, Phil Steele. What do you? What do you? What do you see? I think Texas fans thought Tom Herman was going to come in and get this team to double-digit wins last year. Didn't happen. Just six wins during the regular season. Had to win the bowl game to get a winning record. And when I talked to Coach Herman this spring, going over the team with him, he was very displeased with what he got out of the offensive line and the running backs last year. And you got the the feeling that that's going to get corrected because there's talent there. It's a huge priority to get that corrected. And you may even see a true freshman running back like Keontae Ingram step in and be the feature running back this year. So so I'm looking for a much better run game. They also have two veteran quarterbacks in Sam Ellinger and Shane Bouchel. Uh, you look at the receiving core, they've got some dangerous guys like little Jordan Humphrey and Colin Johnson. And then defensively, they had the second-best defense in the Big 12 last year. They've got seven starters back this year. you got a Gary Johnson at the linebacker spot. Uh, solid corners with Chris Boyd and Devontae Davis. So I think with that defense and the fact that the Big 12 is wide open, there's really no dominant teams in 
look who Texas plays on the road this year. Kansas State, tough with anytime Bill Snyder's on the opposing sidelines. It's a tough game, but I think they have the talent edge there. Oklahoma State's in a rebuilding year. Texas Tech and Kansas. Where yeah. The toughest game away from home is against Oklahoma. They get West Virginia at home. They get TCU at home. They get USC at home this year. So a nice schedule. I think Texas uh, finds its way into the Big 12 title game, and that makes them a, a national title contender. And uh, Tom Herman knows how to win the big games. Yeah, but uh, but I was just going to say, but as someone who watched every minute of every Texas game last year as best they could, it's in those last couple of minutes, right, where they've lost these games. And, year. you know, I do a lot of uh, now analytics and I have found that teams that come off a lot of close losses the previous year usually have a big jump in the record next year. And, you know, if you look at Texas last year, they had three net close losses. That means they were basically three plays away from being a 10 and 3 team last year. And that, that has, that has them way under the radar this year. Who was it? It was USC. Oklahoma, too, wasn't it, in that game? Yeah, Oklahoma was tight, a five-point loss there. Overtime against Oklahoma State. Overtime against USC. So, you know, you change one play in those three games, and you're talking about a 10-3 and team. All right, well, you're preaching to the choir here. I'm not going to push on that, I I think. So let's talk about Oklahoma for a second, because as as I read your chart, uh, that's the battle for the Big 12, Oklahoma or Texas. Yeah, I think that's what the Big 12 is going to come down to this year. And Baker Mayfield's gone. Uh, uh, Kyler Murray's got experience. He's a dynamic quarterback, great with the legs. You're not going to see him put up 43 touchdowns and six interceptions like Mayfield had last year. But I think Kyler Murray's going to have a a very good year because of the sporting cast. Rodney Anderson leads the running backs, which I rate number five in the country. They've got... Excuse me, my number four receiving core in the country, number five rated offensive line in the country. Their defense was not dominant last year. It's not going to be dominant this year, but it will be improved. And then um, when you look at their schedule, they do have to play Texas in Dallas. They have to play TCU on the road. They also have to play West Virginia on the road. So I, I don't know if we're going to see an Oklahoma get to the point of, uh, you know, just a one loss in the regular season like they did last year. But I think the Big 12 is going to probably come down to the Red River rivalry, and it might be a rematch in the Big 12 title game. Um, let's, let's talk about your other surprise team. I think you have it as a big surprise team, uh, Notre Dame. You see them back coming back strong. Is that right? Yeah, I do. And, you know, last year I had my number one most improved team. They were coming off a four-win season, and I thought that they could really improve on their record, and they did. They got to ten wins. Uh, at one point, they were number three in the country and favored at Miami of Florida late in the season. That's right. uh, came apart That's a little right. bit. Uh, the run game dropped off, and the uh, the defense got a little banged up, especially on the interior. Now, this year when I look at Notre Dame, I see nine returning starters coming back. They actually have my number 13 defense in the country, and offensively, Brandon Winbush has been Back at QB, he's got a very good backup in Ian Book, who led the bowl game win. Offensive line, they do lose two first-round draft picks, but they're still loaded up front. And I like the running core and receivers. But nine returning starters on defense, that's a nice thing to have. When you look at their schedule, it's yeah. not easy. There's a lot of big names on there. Yeah. But look at the road games. The road games are Wake Forest, 
Virginia Tech, Northwestern, and USC. Tough, but all winnable. They get Michigan at home, they get Stanford at home, and they get Florida State at home. So if they can take care of business at home, by the way, they bring Florida State in in November. It's always nice to have that cold weather advantage against the warm weather team. Uh, I think the Notre Dame's got a shot at being uh, a team that won't be ranked in the preseason top ten. Nobody's going to talk about them for the national title, but they've got a shot at making the playoffs this year. Do they? Okay. Okay. Um, I want to jump ahead and have you comment on, remind the audience of their last game last year, uh, University of Central Florida, UCF. How about those guys? Yeah, Central's going to be uh, good this year. They do go from being the hunter to the hunt dead now that they've yeah. got the undefeated yeah. record. Uh, but uh, when I talked to Coach Heupel this year, he likes the talent he's got there. You're talking about Mackenzie Milton is back at QB, Adrian Killens and Otis Anderson are running back. They've got solid receivers, offensive line, defensive line. They or defensively they lose Shaq Griffin. They only have six starters back on D, but they only had four starters back last year. Uh, they're going to have some toss-up games. Everybody's going to be gunning for them. I think they slip up once or twice this season. They do play North Carolina on the road, Memphis on the road, mm-hmm. USF on the road, but. But uh, they're still my pick to win the AAC East this year. I do remind people they beat Auburn, did they not? I have to keep looking that up, but they did beat Auburn. (laughs) They did in the Sugar Bowl and and then went on to claim their uh, national championship afterwards. Right, right. Well, (laughs) you know, Auburn did whack Alabama pretty good, you know? Yeah, well, it's uh, interesting. You know, I think... uh, I, th- I thought they had a great season last year. I think if they played big games every week like the Power yeah, Five does, yeah. probably wouldn't have gone unbeaten last year. But I'm going to give them credit. Unbeaten season, knocked off Auburn. Uh, very good year for UCF. Okay, Claude, jump in, man. Yeah, you know, I normally don't do this, but I want to take a little bit of time to kind of be a homer for a second and talk University of Maryland. Oh, um, for Pete's sakes, get off the phone. <laughs> what are you, what are you t- They open against Texas. Go ahead. Say, no one else is going to talk about them outside okay, of that, right? Go ahead. Go um, ahead. So the, the, the issue always seems to be at quarterback, particularly last year, tons of injuries. What does that position look like this year, and what is it with Maryland quarterbacks getting injured all the time? Yeah, that's a good question. In fact, when I talked to Coach Durkin this year, my first question to him was, I said, I just walked past the mailroom and I got some bubble wrap. You want me to send it to you so you could uh, <laughs> bubble wrap your quarterback? And uh, he, he said no. He said, yeah, they're going to be healthy this year. Kasim Hill is back. He's an exciting guy. He's, and he's a redshirt freshman. Remember, he was thrown in the starting lineup because of injuries. I think he would have played a lot last year as it was. Then he got injured, but he's back. They've got Pigrom back at the quarterback spot. Uh, they've got uh, Tyler DeSue, a true freshman, coming in. And then, of course, Bortenschlager's back there as well. So they've got four quarterbacks. Let's hope they don't need all four. And if they don't, you know, they've got a Ty Johnson, a running back. They've got a veteran offensive line, which I rate number 11 in the country. Defensive line looks solid. I actually rate their defensive line number 34. Uh, and their secondary, I rate number 50 in the country. So they've got four units that rank in my top units in the front of the magazine. Uh, when you look at their schedule, uh, they've been probably be favored at Bowling Green, home against Temple, home against Minnesota, home against Rutgers, home against Illinois, and then they just have to steal one other game out there this year to get to a bowl. But I think they have a real good shot at uh, getting to a bowl game this year, and they just got to keep those quarterbacks healthy. You had to bring that up, Claude, didn't you? I just Texas, had to see what's going on. was Texas <laughs> opener last year. It broke my heart, you know. But, you know, it is in, in, uh, near, in the Beltway, Claude. Maybe you and I should go to that game. Maybe. Maybe we should. Okay, we'll sit on opposite sides, so. Okay, all right. Um, did you hear about that, Phil? Did you read that item about the, the bride and groom? 
the LSU and the Texas A&M. Did you see that? No. No, I don't think I caught that one. <laughs> this is Well, this is more in the cultural realm than the football realm, but I loved it. This guy uh, got a wedding cake. He's, from, he's an LSU grad. And he got a wedding cake made, and it's Tiger Stadium, and it's filled with Tiger fans and so on. Somehow his wife found out about the cake the night before the wedding. She's an Aggie. So she got a hold of the cake and, and colored in some uh, Texas A&M jerseys uh, in the stadium. Wow. So, so that half the stand was Texas A&M, and then she added to the to the cake a scoreboard and put 42-14 or something, Texas A&M. So, again, this is all over the Internet. People are people are loving it. Let's talk about A&M, because uh, I, I wrote a, a, a gal I know uh, who's a huge Texas A&M fan, goes to all their games, and uh, I said, uh, are you paying your coach too much? And she wrote me back. She said he hadn't lost a game yet. Tell us, tell, <laughs> tell, tell us about that. Well, you know, I Has he signed, by the way? Has Jimbo signed? Um, I'm, that I'm not sure of. I, I'm I know not sure of either. He will. I mean, you're not going to turn away $100 million over 10 years guaranteed, oh that's gosh. for sure. But, uh, you know, when I talked to Coach Fisher this spring, he, he likes what he inherited here at Texas A&M. Uh-huh. I mean, let's face it, Kevin Sumlin did a good job recruiting. He's got two good quarterbacks in Nick Starkle and Kellen Mond. Travion Williams uh, leads a pretty good running back core. And Texas a and is actually one of only nine teams in the country that rank in my top units in all eight position categories, including special teams, where they're number 16 coming in. So this is going to be a pretty good team. Okay. Coach Fisher likes what he's inheriting. Not thrilled with the schedule. They play Alabama and Clemson in the first four games of the season, and then later they have to travel to face South Carolina, Mississippi State, and Auburn in Jordan-Hare. So they'll probably be an underdog in four, potentially five games this year. But I think Jimbo Fisher will get more out of them than what you expect. And I look for them to top last year's seven-win total. Okay, we got to let you go here in a couple minutes. Just I want to talk about some early season indicators to the degree that they are. Uh, very interested to see, uh, and you can talk about the coach for a second, Florida Atlantic playing Oklahoma. Is that correct? That's right. Early in the year. And, uh, you know, FAU's got a lot of talent coming back this year. Uh, they switched their defensive coordinator. They bring in the Southern Miss defensive coordinator. And he likes what he inherited offensively. They got Charlie Weiss Jr. as the, uh, the, the offensive coordinator. He's 24 years old, but I talked to him this spring. Pretty sharp guy. And they, you know, they lose their quarterback, but they like what they have at quarterback. They've got Devin Singletary back at running back. That'll be an interesting game right out of the box. I, I've got Oklahoma 17 points favorite in the game. I think yeah. Vegas has him a 21-point favorite. Okay. Uh, and remember, last year, Florida Atlantic didn't do so well in the non-conference games, uh, losing to Wisconsin by 17 and the Navy by 23, but they were clearly playing their best ball at the end of the year. Okay, two last questions. Uh, other early season games to watch, first week, second week, that'll tell us something. Well, a big one like Notre Dame against Michigan is huge right mm-hmm. out of the box mm-hmm. for both mm-hmm. the teams. Uh, mm-hmm. If either's going to contend for the national title, they would need to win that game. Notre Dame gets that one at home. There's the Auburn game that we talked about with Washington right out of the box. Uh, that is going to be a major game. So I, I think uh, if you're looking at the games the first two weeks, those are probably the two biggest ones that jump to my mind. All right, and uh, the last two, and they're real quick questions. The, uh, the the playoffs, the four teams, your your crystal ball right now. 
four teams to the playoffs going out on the limb with Alabama and Clemson in there. But the uh, the other two teams, I think Ohio State escapes a very competitive Big Ten. And then I like the way Washington's schedule huh. is laid huh. out, and I also huh. think it's Chris Peterson's best team. So I'm going to go with Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, and Washington. And I believe that was the playoffs two years ago. That's right. Who's the biggest challenge to Washington, and where is it on the schedule uh, in terms uh, of the, the pack? Uh, Pac-12. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna say it's gonna be um, Stanford. The Pac-12 title game, the title game against USC. They okay. get Stanford at home, but they do have to play Oregon on the road, so that could be a tricky one because Autzen Stadium is one of the most underrated venues out there. Okay, and final question. I began to read your essay, but I didn't finish it. You're not with me for an eight-team playoff, right? You like the four. Yeah, definitely a four. You know, Bill, I wrote about it in the magazine, I think it was 14 years ago. I said, my perfect playoff system is a four-team playoff, one against four, two against three, and, uh, you know, seed them that way, and then they have a one-game championship. And I uh, wrote about it for 10 years. It finally came to fruition, and I've enjoyed the four-team playoff so far, so I think there's a lot of benefits. Okay, very good. Phil, we thank you very much. You're not off the hook. We're going to talk to you later in August or September, okay? Awesome. Looking forward to it, Bill, and uh, always enjoy our conversations, my friend. Thank you very much. Uh, We really appreciate you, and uh, gosh, again, just the sound of your voice makes me think ready to kick off. Let's go. Okay, thanks, (laughs) Phil Steele. Okay, that just about does it for this episode. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to BillBennettShow.com. That's BillBennettShow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett, and you can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up next week.